One year, I kind of got an idea. You almost tried trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure. And I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the furball. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Purpose and Game magazine. There's structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon's ads to information, trapping radios. We are trappers and ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because work it ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got very much the same as the you got bogged down. They started talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't get any better. Trying to set predator trash and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Back in the fur shed. This is Trapping Today. I'm Jeremiah Wood. Thank you for listening in. We are brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Traps, snares, baits, lures, books, DVDs, everything you need to get started on the trap line. Check out Cots Bros. On X Maps, use your phone as a GPS on the trap line. Mark trap locations, run tracks, scout trapping areas with the latest aerial imagery, and then use their parcel data to figure out who owns the land and get landowner information and landowner permission. Check them out at onxmaps.com. Use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, for 20% off. Brought to you by Moyle, Mink, and Tanner. You know what you're going to do with your fur this year? Are you like me? You're getting tired of rock-bottom fur prices? Maybe it's time to take matters into your own hands, have your fur tanned, and create an alternative direct-to-consumer market. If you just caught the first animals of your trapping career or you're getting the first of a particular species, please don't make the same mistake that I did. I wish I would have kept the first of every species I caught and had it tanned. Um, and if you're going to have it tanned and save it and preserve those memories, use the professionals. Moyle Mink and Tannery, family-owned business. They've been doing this forever. And, uh, I mean, it's just the way to go. Great prices, great service. M-O-Y-L-E dot net. That's Moyle dot net. And use their customer portal to get your fur um processed and in a way that you can preserve it for the long term whether that's going to be you know just hanging it on the wall or making stuff making mitts and hats and whatever whatever other stuff you want to make um, we got to get creative in this new fur market so um, check them out moil.net and honestly I don't think having a pile of tan fur in your house is a big problem it's not going to go bad on you and there are just so many options. Fur is such a valuable resource. We just got to figure out um, the right way to use it and, and figure out a way that uh, it's it's marketable in some fashion. So anyway, uh, I, on, I'm i going to be honest with you guys. It took me, I, this is like the seventh or eighth time that I recorded this intro. So you're just hearing it once. And th- th- I stuttered and stammered a little bit here this this time, this is, again, 7th or 8th time, so I'm not going to do it again. Uh, that's it. But, yeah, I'm kind of played out. I've been on the tractor all day and and running the chainsaw, uh, cutting wood on, on the farm here. And so my skin is burning from the cold air, cold wind all day long, But I, and my muscles are sore, but I feel great. Feel like I've I've worked and got something done, so that's good. And uh, yeah, usually I should do these at the very beginning of the day, instead of the end of the day, where my brain is all fried. But anyway, I'm excited about this week. The Martin joke continues. <laughs> so I had all kinds of feedback from guys that uh, have have had questions, comments, uh, criticisms everything else with Martin. So I guess those last few episodes where we just went heavy on Martin trapping has 
probably turned some people off, although the stats have continued to grow. So I, I don't think there are fewer people listening because of it, but uh, it, it's also got a lot of people thinking and excited about it. Actually, one guy sent me a, a picture of a fisher he just caught. He said, you know, the Martin stuff was getting a little old, but man, now that I caught I caught a fisher, I'm so excited about these mustelids. And, and uh, I just think this is the coolest thing ever. I had uh, some feedback on boxes, on newspaper tubes, on elevated sets versus ground sets. Uh, some of it, I think, was was maybe a little bit of uh, misunderstanding on what what I was trying to communicate. So I'm going going to address that a little bit in the future on in terms of ground sets versus elevated sets. A couple of different emails on that, but overall, just great great to hear from you guys and uh, good good to know that there was there was a lot of uh, a lot of thinking a lot of thinking generated. I love getting people in the audience to think about different aspects of trapping because it gets me excited and the questions that you bring up kind of get me thinking as well so that's that's always good nothing good nothing but good can come from that so so that's what's going on there we're going to probably address some of that here in a future episode no I'm not going to go Martin in Alaska every week unfortunately that would be great for me but <laughs> there's all, so many other things to cover we do have to talk about the fur market at some point here coming up and I think I'm going to do something on YouTube because I haven't done anything on there recently and do a little fur market update there and maybe I'll do a dual YouTube slash podcast I'm not sure yet um, we're gonna we got a lot to talk about in terms of tanning I'm going to try to get somebody from Moyle on the podcast to discuss kind of what they do and how they how they get first hand and process all that and everything sort of a little bit of maybe the science behind tanning and at some point this winter I need to start trying to tan some of my own furs so I picked up a couple of books and those are on the way I'm hopefully going to be able to read up on things and and order some supplies and try to figure out the path towards tanning a little bit of my own fur just to to know how it's done really and I got some stuff that just wasn't worth sending in to be tanned small quantities or different sizes or damaged fur so I'm gonna sort of use those as guinea pigs to try and learn a little bit about this process so stay tuned for that and then a whole pile of interviews I, I mentioned in the interview that I did uh, this week that I, I wish I kind of had somebody that was just uh, kind of a schedule person that would, would call everybody and contact all these different people and set up interviews and, and all of that because it really is a bit of a task to, to try to balance that in a little bit of free time that I have. But um, I, I have a list. I'm looking at my whiteboard right now, and there are, I think, about 15 names on that list of of people that I'm targeting for interviews so hopefully we'll be able to get at least knock out a few of those in in the coming weeks and we did knock out one this week it was a really great interview with Philippe from Virginia Philippe is a relatively new trapper he is the artist behind the Mustelid t-shirt so I thought you know you probably be interested in that because that's some pretty incredible artwork if you haven't picked up that shirt yet go to trappingtodaystore.com and see uh, see what's available. There should be uh, uh, t-shirts available in all sizes as I record this right now. And Philippe is, is very gifted, very talented, and he's a very unique person. And he's not somebody that I would have expected uh, in the ranks of trappers, if you think of typical trappers. So he has a a perspective that I think is very interesting for those of us who have different backgrounds to kind of uh, listen to and learn from because I, I think it is really quite fascinating that uh, people from all walks of life can get in, in immersed into this whole trapping lifestyle and it's been awesome to, to watch him grow as a trapper uh, over these past two years. And to uh, to finally get to after all the emails back and forth and pictures and 
artwork and everything else to finally get to sit down and just go back and forth and talk. So I did split this up into two different segments. So we're going to listen to the first one tonight and uh, probably the second one next week. But let's uh, let's sit down and hear from Philippe from Virginia. Okay. Yeah, Philippe Willis. Philippe Willis. Well, it's good to have you on, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Uh, so you have uh, a, a very interesting background uh, after you know following your stuff and emailing back and forth with you and, and listening to your podcast. You come from, you know, the, the trapping community is is changing as a lot of the old old timers kind of uh, get out of trapping or 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 pass away. Uh, the new trappers recruiting to the ranks, you know, we're seeing a lot of. Uh, people with with different backgrounds than your traditional trapper who grew up on the farm and daddy trapped and granddaddy mm. tra- trapped and and have that that uh, more more immersed background of the culture of trapping. Uh, but you have probably the most unique background of a trapper uh, as as I've I've heard of before. So you want to maybe run us through where you came from and and how you got into this whole deal. Sure. Well, thank you. I hope it's unique. Um, you know, I do have an uncle. When I grew up, my uncle um, lived out in the country in Virginia, and him and his children hunted. And when I've talked to him recently, he did tell me he used a muskrat trap when he grew up. I mean, he's 80 now, but when he was a young man in um, New England, he used a muskrat trap. I'm going to have him on my podcast because I want to hear about that. But uh, yeah, this has not been... I was never invited by my uncle. So hunting was never really part of my life in the slightest. I grew up in Northern Virginia, um, suburban, but there were some woods, you know, there's some woods around our house that me and my friends would play in playing war and playing all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, grew up in the suburbs, um, went to New York city for film school for college. I was there for 10 years. And after, you know, I was into partying hard and all that stuff up in New York City in college years. And then that starts to get old. And uh, I started, I, you know, I was trying to get my film career going. That wasn't working. And I started drawing, which I had given up for a really long time. And I just started drawing and drawing. I was like possessed by drawing. I couldn't stop. And I was just drawing for like 15 hours a day because I had so little work for my film work. And uh, opportunities arose to move out of New York City because I started getting hired to illustrate for nonprofits down here in Virginia. And uh, yeah, I got hired by a an kind of a uh, medicinal, a Appalachian medicinal plant nonprofit that hired me to illustrate a bunch of signs and the woman who ran the nonprofit offered me to uh, rent her cabin on her property here in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia. And I was like, done. I have to move. <laughs> I was getting I was getting so listless in New York. Like so I you, felt you like lived in an apartment in New York City in Brooklyn. Yeah. Okay. And it's so ugly. I mean, it's just a hideous, hideous place. And I and over the 10 years, I never felt like I was a New Yorker. I never felt it. You know, even though I had a long period where I, where I really enjoyed the nightlife and all that, I just never felt it. Mm-hmm. And I was just starting, I know you and I talked about it through email. I was starting to, there's a psychoanalyst who, Marie Louise von Franz, who wrote this quote that I'll say here if I can remember it. But basically it's saying that the modern person, they fill up their time with spectator sports and with political intrigue and with television and entertainment and that might that might like that might um entertain them for a time but again and and again they have to return to the wasteland of their own lives and that's kind of how i felt like i was just like my life was not starting my film career was not starting and the second i moved to the country i immediately felt like my life had started and I immediately felt like, you know, now I'm in nature and I'm listening to the animals and weather all day long. I felt like I was finally grounded, not just floating around in my head. You were where you were supposed to be. Yeah, 100%. So, 
Yeah. So while I was still, I guess to get back to what you're asking, while I was still in New York, so that was four years ago, I just couldn't stop thinking about hunting. So four years ago, Joe Rogan's talking about hunting all the time. I get into Meat Eater. I'm watching all of the shows. I'm reading all of Ranella's books. And, you know, he even has a great chapter in his uh, Meat Eater book about when he was a trapper. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just and also Daniel Vitalis had this Rewild Yourself podcast. Yeah, which was less about hunting men and it was more just about how to, yes, and to be, yeah, and to become wild again. So I'm listening to those guys and I was like, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. So yeah, I came down here. I was, I was, I immediately got my hunting license and I was learning how to hunt. And I've been doing that now for the past four seasons. And last year I just started getting into trapping and that was just like totally beyond anything I would have ever thought about and i've kind of told this story before but i was in not to this audience exactly so i was i was in rural king which is like a hardware country hardware store well not really hardware it's like everything store yeah and uh i kept looking at the traps and i was like i could never do this i was like i could never (laughs) trap an animal i didn't know anything about it i was just like i could never do this but i'm really into carl jung and Jungian psychology. And one of the themes is to the things that scare you to go towards them. So I was like, I know there's some intense, hugely intense thing inside me that can't stop looking and thinking about these traps. So I started pursuing it. So were, were the were the traps just being on the store shelf there, the, the impetus, or was there something else? Was it listening to Ranella? Uh, no. What was it about trapping? Yeah, good question, because the, the, all the trapping stuff was not even being processed. Like, I don't even think <laughs> I processed that chapter in Ranella's book. I was too focused on the hunting element since yeah. I hadn't done that yet. But I kept looking at these traps. And, you know, they were like the ones they have at this store, are like the Dukes. So they had a few footholds. And when I look back at this experience, this is kind of a weird experience, Um But back when I was in New York City, when The Revenant came out, I can't remember if that was like five years ago or six years ago. But when The Revenant came out, I went to the theater with my film partner. And I don't even think I knew about, I don't even think I registered that the characters in the film were fur trappers. I don't even think I registered that. (laughs) Really? I don't, I didn't know anything about the history. Yeah. I, like, I just have never researched mountain men. I had, I didn't really know anything about it, but right in the beginning this is kind of weird but right in the beginning of the movie after they i think they shoot an elk and then they go into their fur camp and then these uh this tribe rides down into it and they they and start slaughtering them and they get into this battle right when that was happening in the movie in the theater and this has never happened while watching any other movie ever i mean obviously i've cried at movies that are incredibly powerful but i've never had an experience like this when when those Native Americans rode into that camp, I started shaking and I felt like this memory, like deep in my body, like pushing up in my stomach. And I felt like I almost had to run out of the movie theater screaming. And I, and some part of me is like yelling, I've done this. Like I've done this. I've lived this. I've lived this. And so that was very strange. And again, now that I've been trapping, I'm kind of starting to understand that maybe there's some connection there. I don't know if I believe in past lives. I'm not sure I believe in that, but some part of my soul or however you want to call it, it was like, this is clearly important to you. No, no doubt. uh, Harvesting animals is ingrained in our DNA as humans. Exactly. Yeah. Even just that connection, that instinctual connection. So, um, so yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And so now, literally just like this past week, I've been researching more about how the Native Americans were trappers. And that is like, for I didn't know anything about this. And this Vikings. Is and Vikings, yeah. <laughs> so I'm super, now I'm just like so intrigued by all that. Yeah, yeah, it is really cool. There's so much history there. Um, and and so, so you decided that... Uh, Bring us back to that decision that I need to start trapping. Yeah, well, I'm an artist and I'm a Pisces. And um, so I I just kind of follow my 
I don't know what you want to call them. Just like, it's not really an urge. I just, I often with, with my artwork or whatever, I just kind of follow this intense drive. So I know that there's this drive. I keep looking at these traps. I get my trapping license. I start listening to you. So this is last winter. I start listening to Chris Pope with Coyote Trapping School. And I'm like, well, I'm going to try this. And there's a WMA, like literally just 10 minutes down the road here. I've uh, squirrel hunted there. I've never been able to get a deer there. Um, it's not that big. It's about 4,000 acres. A lot of guys from Northern Virginia, which is very populated, go there. Okay. And um, But I don't think anybody traps there. And I set some traps, some muskrat traps, thinking, well, this will be a great way to get some food because I love the eating element. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I just totally blind set it on this creek. There's zero sign of muskrats. And you know, nothing happens <laughs> over like two weeks. <laughs> you thought this was supposed to be easy. Well, I'm not sure what I thought. <laughs> I haven't. And so then I got frustrated. I'm like, well, I need to catch something. So I'm going to try raccoon. So, yeah, I kind of walked maybe three fourths to a mile into this WMA. And I just found this creek. This is last February now. I found this creek that um, had a game trail that went onto like a private farm um like a big field and there's a big dead snag and i just felt inside of me i knew exactly that this was the spot and i set i only think i've set two traps there and after three days um you know i go in there it's like 20 degrees so the the creek is frozen over and uh there you go there's a raccoon and there's um a possum the possum had seemed to have frozen to death and the raccoon well i've told this story but Yes, intense this, story. You've you've told it on your like what was it the first episode of your podcast, first or second? Exactly, the first one. Do you want me to get into it a little bit? Uh yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it, this was just the first animal I've ever trapped, which was this raccoon. And I kind of uh got um it kind of I kind of um it kind of startled me out of the fantasy of trapping because I had never gotten anything into the reality the of reality. trapping, which yeah. correct. And there's an animal on a chain and I've got to dispatch it. And I've never done this before. And I'm kind of slightly panicked. And um, so I have my 22 with a scope on it and I try to shoot it from a few feet away and not quite understanding the, the, um, trajectory of a bullet so i'm aiming where i want it to hit and it's not going where i'm aiming because the bullet hasn't risen and i'm shooting this raccoon really low in its neck instead of the head and the raccoon is going crazy and this is like really one of the worst it's a, experiences it's a nightmare in my life you. yeah it's a nightmare for this to be my introduction to what i from my perspective of what trapping is and i have to basically finish it off by bludgeoning it with a stick but like and this was awful and it really felt awful. I, I really felt horrible and I felt really guilty about it. And, um, yeah, well, having to process that feeling and I kept, but I kept trying to trap, you know, I, I got beavers and I felt okay about that. And, you know, I've done more raccoon trapping this year and I felt okay about it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and well, just to say here at this point here that, I think some things that have helped is being really calm and to be very honest, um, I've started to pray. Like I've started to pray when I approach my trap line and that, that that's this year. I wasn't doing that last year. And that has seemed to really make things a lot smoother. That That's interesting. And also, when when you're you're do that first dispatch, you know that is is what turns a lot of people off to trapping. It's it's mm -hmm. a very difficult thing, and the worst of it is you're not experienced with quick humane dispatch. Correct. You don't know exactly what to do, even if you've been told you you haven't practiced it, and mm -hmm. and it's a really difficult hurdle to get over. And when you when I first listened to that episode and you discussed it, it it was pretty brutal, and uh, it reminded me. Uh, of uh, the concept of tragic wisdom. And, and yes. that is really something that hit me when, when I first started trapping because it, it's a, a constant battle internally where where you feel bad when you kill mm -hmm. an animal. 
but you also kind of feel good and and it's that, mm-hmm. that mix of of bad and good feeling is is so difficult for people to understand and and to get through and if you don't feel bad you you probably got something wrong with you um and you, yeah you know you th- those are the type of people uh, oftentimes that you know abuse animals and uh have have other issues and and end up being criminals and, and all of that but um j- just it's confusing for us and i think a lot of us as trappers ignore it because yeah, we don't so- understand it um and and i just uh, um I wanted to sort of read a quick, I have in front of me this uh, sport hunting eudaimonia and tragic wisdom by Mm. ethicist James Tantillo from Cornell University. And he gave a a talk when I was at college at the University of Maine that really opened my eyes to this. Um, And just toward the end of this paper, there's a couple of paragraphs I wanted to read just to kind of get people into the the understanding of, of what we were experiencing uh, what what all of us experience as trappers. So it says uh, here in, in kind of conclusion to this paper, hunters have dirty hands in both the literal and the philosophical sense. Despite the apparent evil of taking an animal's life, hunters gain an enriched human experience and a form of wisdom that counterbalances the bad. As Marianne Warren writes, quote, the human interests served by non-subsistence hunting are not always trivial, end quote. For many hunters, she explains, quote, the experience is important to their spiritual and psychological well-being, end quote. For others, hunting is the primary way in which they come to enjoy and understand nature. Hunters own the deaths they cause. They possess a direct awareness of the fragility of life and the contingency of existence. Sport hunting, properly conducted and properly understood, can therefore lead to wisdom and contribute to the human flourishing or eudaimonia. The tragic affirmation of life that hunters experience through hunting is akin to the tacit knowledge more traditionally afforded by tragic drama. And this is cases me back to what you said about people in New York City and sports and mm. movies. Hunting calls for an appropriate emotional and cognitive response on the part of both the hunter and the critic. Critics must know what it is they oppose before registering their complaints. And hunters must become more articulate and sensitive to the underlying or embedded reasons for hunting. I love that. And, and you can, every, every hunting there can be substituted for trapping. Um, and absolutely is in trapping. I think this is even more so important because it's, it's, uh, as you know, it's a, a much different process. Yeah. And that really, I mean, I love that. I love that. And I've heard him in a podcast and that was, and like it was for you, I found him to be extremely, um, clarifying of a lot of my feelings. And, um, that concept of tragic wisdom I found to be deeply profound. And um, yeah, because I don't hear too many people talk about how heavy it feels to kill, especially on the trap line, that I kind of was wondering to myself, like, am I a psycho? Like, why am I, why am I doing this? Like, why am I hurting? Like, why am I doing this? Yeah. And that was hard to deal with. And now I'm feel like I'm beyond that. But, um, yeah, something I've been thinking about lately. So I'm in a I'm in a men's group that we talk weekly, and I've kind of told other people if you want to think about it, it's kind of like maybe like a church group. Like you know, we basically talk about life and we talk about our you know family issues and growing up and you know traumatic things throughout life and how to move forward in our lives. And it's guys my age, like 30s into their 60s, but um, you know, it's hard to relay to these guys my trapping experiences and. You know, I'm painting this mural in town and I've been meeting some, uh, you know, people of different lifestyles to me. And one of the guys on this job site is, um, you know, he's a vet. He's just, he was, he fat, he fought in Afghanistan. And I kind of made this connection that I kind of feel like, I kind of feel a little lonely because I can't express to the average person mm-hmm. this pursuit and that I can kind of see it how soldiers have to hang out with other soldiers because no one else understands the really, really intense shit that they've lived through. And I kind of feel something like that with trapping that I have. So I've made all these like trapping friends like on Instagram because I need someone to talk to just, and I'm not talking about the intense emotional stuff. I mean, just talking about it, just like sharing pictures, Exactly. just share. Yeah. Just sharing pictures and the excitement and like track reading and sign reading. 
I just, and I can't really relay this to someone who's never done it because it's so intense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a part of why trapping associations have, have been so popular and well mm. uh, represented for so long. Cause it gives people that opportunity to network and mm. we're all like, on an island you know like every town has one two three trappers for the most part mm. and uh in the past we it's been very difficult you know we're like we're like the mountain men once a year you get together for a big rendezvous <laughs> <laughs> you know um yeah. and share stories but uh today with with the internet and all the different ways that we can connect it's been pretty neat to to be able to to share things with people from all over the north america mm-hmm. so so yeah, how, I'm a, how did you uh, how did you progress with with uh, your trapping from that first coon? Yeah, so well, I felt really guilty about that coon, and I felt guilty about foothold trapping. So I kind of paused on the footholds last season. I focused on I was trying to find a muskrat property. I don't think we have too many muskrats where I am in Virginia. When I talked to a guy with the Virginia Trappers Association, he said muskrats have really been going down across Virginia. I would love to find a muskrat spot because um, maybe we can talk about this later in the podcast. But really, one of my focuses with the trapping is for the food. Mm -hmm. So I would love to have a spot where I can get tons and tons of muskrat food. But um. Yeah, so I was trying to find a muskrat pond, and I was driving around the countryside. This is last February, and um, basically, I was stopping at farmers' houses asking, hey, do you have any muskrats? And one guy said, I've got beavers. And I just said, done. And I just, <laughs> I didn't say anything. I, I just pretended like, okay. And I went out, and, you know, I ordered, you know, two-day shipping on a bunch of 330 Converse. And I was like, yep, all right, let's do it. <laughs> So they had a they had a big pond with a ton of flooding that was actually kind of approaching this main country road, and um, yeah, I trapped five beavers over there. I was really concerned and still am about killing a whole colony. I mean, that's not really my interest. Like, I don't, I don't want to feel like an exterminator. Um, I, I, so I've been trying to figure that out, and. Um, yeah, I took five last year. I know that they had shot one or two, so that colony might be gone. Um, and they're probably and very went... thankful for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, As again, is the road complex. department. <laughs> exactly. Um, but they invited me back this year, and I was trapping there the, pa the past three days. And I've got four beavers from another pond. And um, – this time it was kind of interesting because we communicated more and it doesn't sound like he wants to completely take him out. He just kind of wants to slow the, uh, slow the flooding. So I guess this is actually might be an interesting point to ask you a question, which is if, is it possible if you're helping someone with beaver nuisance to just kind of slow the problem down and, and what's, you know, I've listened to like meat trapper. I like him, even though I don't really, the politics stuff is entertaining, but I'm really just interested in the, in, in, the trapping, the, yeah. in trapping. But so he says that if you want to keep coming back to a spot, you take two beavers. So what is your thoughts on um, if you want to help someone's nuisance problem, but you don't, but I don't, I just don't really want to feel like an exterminator. So the take two, uh, in my experience, that, that only works when, the trapping pressure is relatively well distributed in, in the broad area. Mm. And, and so the beaver, uh, you're basically maintaining colonies. That's that, that take two has been something traditionally in Maine. That's been, uh, a, a very, very common rule of thumb that okay. if you, if you harvest two beavers from a colony every year, uh, approximately, you know, you, you will be able to go back every year and, and continue to uh, to harvest the same number of beavers in theory. Now, the problem with that, again, in my experience, is that there are so few beaver trappers. Like the last uh, mm. ten, 10 years or so, uh, are, I haven't looked at the latest harvest results, but uh, we're well under half of the beavers we used to harvest 10 years ago in the state in Maine. Mm. And... Uh, that number from 10 years ago is well below the tradition, the historical number back in the, you know, seventies and eighties when you had good fur prices. And so the, the, the issue with that is uh, you take, 
you take two and it doesn't seem to impact the population at all because there are so many beaver uh, above and below you um, that you take two or you take eight or you know you take every single one of the beavers and the next year you have just as many beavers there well that's good to know and the the other common thing is if you if you don't harvest enough beavers in an area they they will really stress the food supply and when they have gone through all of the whatever it is aspen or cottonwood or you know whatever they are happen to be eating all the vegetation on the stream side they will leave when when there isn't ah. when there isn't food within a, oh, a wow. reasonable okay. distance, and so oh, very very common here where we have, especially in northern Maine where I trap, is I'll have to go to five six seven eight different beaver colonies to find an active one, because oh, so wow. they they've hit the food source so hard, and they've left and the the you know younger trees haven't grown up enough to be adequate food, for for more for beaver to move back in, and so really um if if you have a very abundant beaver population in that particular watershed uh, and they're causing a problem i would i would encourage taking them all actually okay that's interesting that's very interesting i'm noticing that they're i think they're eating my winter tree iding skills are pretty weak but i think that they're eating tulip poplar around here in virginia okay i'm not familiar with those uh, i'm assuming they're they're pretty similar to, to like uh, a balsam poplar. Mm, I'm not sure. It's very fragrant, though. Like you can smell in the wood. It's got a lot of flavor. We have we have balsam poplar here. Is, it's a species that uh, the common name is balm of Gilead. Have you ever heard of that? N- no. Okay, so you, you might be interested in that because you're being an herbalist. It was, uh, I think among Native Americans, it was pretty popular for a number of different maladies uh they would they would use the the uh, sap from that tree so cool so but but yeah i mean it really just like anything else there's no hard and fast rule it just all depends on the particular situation but i'd say in general in most places we're seeing far fewer beaver trap than probably needs to be um it Another interesting little, and I not, not to derail the whole podcast, but another interesting observation is when you uh, talk with the guys up in Canada that run registered trap lines, mm-hmm. a lot of them, especially places like Ontario, they have a quota of beavers that the government requires them to harvest mm. in order to, wow. to maintain their lines. So even with low fur prices, they're still harvesting a lot of beavers. And they, the ones that I've talked to and heard from, they are very, very adamant that their beaver populations are more robust because of the level of harvest that they're receiving. Wow, that man, that's great to know. I'm glad to hear this. And, I, and I'm, it's also glad to hear that there are a lot less, uh, well, just there's a lot less pressure so that the individual who's interested in this has more opportunity. Yeah, yeah, it has. It's It's been kind of a blessing and a curse being a trapper these days. Because there there really is no money in the fur, but then again, you got the place to yourself. Mm. <laughs> wow! So you've trapped uh, you've trapped beavers, you've trapped coons. Uh, what about that other species you decided you're going to pursue this year? Yes. Okay. Good point. So now we're back to the original question, which was the evolution of my trapping. So this year. Um, I mean, I can't stop thinking about this. Like, I honestly think I like it more than hunting. So I've been just thinking, and I, I, my girlfriend who lives with me here in this cabin, it's like hunting, trapping, animals, nature. It's like what psychology, those are like the only things we talk about. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So this year I wanted to, I was, you know, got my MB 550s. I just got half a dozen and I've been thinking about coyotes. I've been thinking about bobcats, um, it's also trying to get thinking about mink and I set out a mink line, but it's on a main road. Um, I had permission from the farmer. Basically I set them out for like three weeks and I was seeing tracks, but I couldn't get them. I was trying to do the con bears. Um, I didn't want to do anything baited just cause it was like, I mean, people could literally, I would go in the darkness, but people driving over the bridge and driving on the road could just see me in the Creek. So I just, I didn't want any chance of having to like, kill or release a raccoon or have to release a dog i just didn't want anything baited yeah so anyways i no success there 
but uh yeah i started doing some more raccoon trapping so i got two of those guys and um i actually have a raccoon question but i'll wait till later but uh yeah we've been eating those raccoons and um i was like bobcat i'm focused on bobcat and so i have a section of national forest which is about 35 minutes away and uh, i set my first bobcat line and i did um Probably down a stretch of like three miles, um, I did, I put out five cubbies. And I've been listening to Clint Locklear's podcast, The Trapping Radio. That's been really, really, really helpful, especially because he's in Tennessee. So I feel like we both kind of have like an Appalachian landscape. So I, sure. it's it's good for regionally. And so I've been listening to him and uh, I set my five cubbies and he says to put DPs next to him. So uh, in case any coons come by, they'll ruin your cubby. So I actually did catch a coon on the line. But so, yeah, I put out five cubbies. And on the sixth day, I went over there. My girlfriend came along. And there's something special to my girlfriend. Because every time she comes on the line, we have a catch. <laughs> nice. So, um, yeah, I go to check it. And she's tired. And she's in the car. And uh, I walk like the 500 yards into the woods. And I see the trap is on top of the cubby and I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, well, an animal popped the trap and is not there anymore. And I'm looking at the trap <laughs> and then, and I don't see anything and I hear a growl and then I see the bobcat's face. Wow. And, and I was like, oh, my God. So I kind of ran out of there because I was like, I have to get my girlfriend. She has to be here for this. So I run back to the car. She's like, no way. And so we <laughs> we we head into the woods. And again, I mean, my girlfriend was vegan in high school. When I started hunting four years ago, she was so mad at me for showing like a picture of a dead animal. She like, punched me. And now, you know, we wild game as much as humanly possible. And she's. Now she's even showing interest in trapping and she's helping me with trapping. Amazing. She hasn't made a set. She doesn't have her license, but she's been coming out on the line, helping me make like blocking off and stuff like that. And she's really loving the routine and the, it, it really making you grounded. Um, and so anyways, I, we go back, I see the Bobcat, but I really had this feeling that the Bobcat is like a ghost. Like I could never see the full bobcat. Like I felt like my eyes couldn't process the entirety of the animal because I was in the woods and it's camouflage just kind of like melted into the cubby. I feel like I could hardly see it. Yeah. So I approach it with my 22 and, you know, going in for the dispatch and this thing, it was a back foot catch. So this thing was able to really lunge at me and um, it, it was definitely attacking you know and it bit the barrel of the 22 and was holding on to the barrel it scratched up the side of my ruger 1022 so now on the stock i have cat scratches on it <laughs> and uh you know but i was very 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 calm i wasn't it wasn't like last year with that raccoon where i was panicking i was very calm uh, my heart wasn't even racing i was just like very present in the moment and just waiting for the right and perfect moment and so, you know, I wasn't just going to shoot down his mouth while he was biting the barrel. I just waited. I was able to pull the gun out. I had that perfect shot, shot. And he was, you know, it seemed as though he died within like one to two seconds. Yep. It, it, Well-placed shot. It's pretty amazing how quick they go down. Just instantly. Yeah. And, you know, my girlfriend came in a little closer. And, I mean, we were both like mesmerized. It, it, it was I feel bad for killing the raccoons because they're so cute. And there's this sometimes they kind of look at you with this like submission. Like this bobcat, I felt so different. And I'm, again, I'm going to get a little crazy, but I was thinking about this for like days. I was like trying to understand this experience. And I felt like this is my first time even seeing a bobcat. I felt as though I was in the presence of such purity like i this animal is just so fully like a predator and i i was thinking about this for days and days and i was like okay well in the past 
I've had a relationship to species. Like I've killed a deer and it's just a member of the species and I love the deer. And then I've had experiences with individuals like this year on muzzleloader season in national forest, I had a little spike buck walk past me and he was within 10 feet and I chose not to shoot. And I got to really see that spike as an individual member of a species. And, you know, you hear that with a lot of the, the deer hunters who watch like a certain buck on their game camera over and over. And they really seem to be attached to pursuing one member of a species, an individual with this bobcat. I felt something different. Like I felt like I was, um, I felt like I was having a relationship with the, with the like essence or the spirit of that animal. Like, I don't mean it's individual spirit. I'm, it's been so strange. Like, I feel like it was the, it's what indigenous people pray to. Like, I feel like it was the spirit of all bobcats. It's very, very strange. And I mean, after after it i can't i couldn't stop listening to all this native american music and now i'm studying all this native american trapping history um you know i've read that the spokane indians i'm not sure if that's how you say their name spokane they were to say spokane but spokane okay yeah they were like i think in the yukon ish area and um they they actively hunted and trapped bobcats with pitfalls and deadfalls and they ate them um, I read that the Pawnee of the of the Great Plains, they would use the furs to wrap their babies for like a celestial blessing. Other tribes saw the bobcat as black magic, which I think is fascinating because there's something so ghostly and mysterious about this animal. So, yeah, brought the bobcat home. We were just kind of in awe of this bobcat. Um, my immediate feeling was not to just get tax- taxidermy and not to just... Uh, have a a beautiful pelt for the wall, but I want something in between. Like I want a pelt that I can wear around my shoulders, but maybe with the taxidermy paws and the taxidermy head, kind of like some kind of ceremonial robe. And uh, I'm just so in awe of this animal and a feeling I had, which is fascinating. And my girlfriend felt the same way was that the intensity of the bobcat is like three times the size of the actual bobcat. <laughs> yeah, that's and, a good point. Like once it dies, it becomes like it was not a very big bobcat. It was about 30 inches. And here in Virginia, ours get to 40. And but when he was alive, he felt like huge. He felt like he was as large as me. Yeah. And try, uh, yeah, try so, trapping a Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Aha, I can't wait. I can't wait. Hey, that was a good one. I personally can't wait until next week to listen to the next uh, part of conversation with Philippe. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Particularly what what I kind of reflect on listening to that first part of the episode is that concept of tragic wisdom in dispatching animals and the, the idea of, of the feelings that go on when we are trapping and participating in this whole activity of, of actually harvesting wild animals and like I mentioned there, you know, I, th- I think if you don't feel guilty, if you don't feel have that bad feeling, that feeling of remorse when you actually make a kill on an animal, there's probably something wrong with you. Uh, I think most all of us feel that way. And it's hard to understand that what's going on in our heads. Uh, and it's hard to recognize that that's okay. That's okay. It just brings us to the, the seriousness of of what's actually taking place and you're taking life and that's a big deal, but it's also an important part of your life and continuing life and being able to utilize natural resources and be your part of your environment. It's, it's a reality that people who don't hunt fish and trap are not exposed to anymore and they've lost. And, and it's a sad sort of narrative on what's going on in our society when we've kind of lost that connection to to the outdoors, the land, to nature, and, and everything else. So it's an interesting concept. It's something that I'll probably dive into more in future episodes, but it's it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And I w- like I said, when I started trapping, I was confused. I I was a little bit conflicted personally, like 
especially like the first live Martin that I came to in a trap. And I was like, I, I felt bad about it. But I I made the kill and dispatched that animal. And I, I looked at the fur and, and I took care of the fur and I felt good about that. So it, it's a it's an interesting thing that goes on in our heads, I guess you could say. Uh, and to be able to understand it better and to put words to it, I think is, is healthy and it's good for all of us. Uh, because just it's one of those things, if you just ignore it, then uh, you probably don't get any further ahead in, in terms of trying to understand what's going on in your head. So enough of philosophical stuff. Let's thank Cots Brothers Lures for sponsoring this podcast and for providing us this last message of the episode. Cots Bros wants you to sign up for their newsletter. So go to cotsbros.com and pull down the drop-down tab for newsletter sign up. Uh, put in your email address. Make sure that doesn't add up in your spam folder. Maybe maybe uh, in the first couple of weeks, you're going to want to check that spam folder and make sure that if you see Cots Bros there, pull it into your inbox. But uh, yeah, if you're signed up for that newsletter, you're going to get updates on what's going on with Cots Bros. If they have any particular special deals or sales or new products uh, that they're offering, you're going to be one of the first to know. And sometimes there's some things that go on sale and it's pretty quick and they'll blast that out to the email newsletter and if you're not uh, part of those emails you're not going to get the message and that's going to be sold out so closeouts and things like that that's uh, it's always good to be on the newsletter and and figure out what's going on so go to cots bros and thank you guys again for listening in it's just so great to have all you here great to have you uh, emailing me jrodwood at gmail.com j-r-o-d-w-o-o-d at gmail.com Until next time, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping. We will catch you on the next episode.